Palm Sunday is today. I hope you like generic Google Slides. Um, today commemorates the event that is sometimes called the triumphant entry, where five days before his bloody public execution, Jesus is escorted uh, in a kind of parade into Jerusalem, into Jerusalem by a crowd that welcomes him with praise, blessings, and the waving of palm branches, where Palm Sunday gets its name. So, if you don't know, that's what Palm Sunday is. Um, and this event is rich with irony. The people accept him on the basis of what they expect him to be or do, but they reject him later on on the basis of who he really is or does. Uh, they shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Only days later to shout, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas, the murderer insurrectionist. What happened in between? That's the point of the slide. Uh, you know, on the left. You can read it. You can read it. Um, what happened in between? Within less than a week's time, they go from one extreme to the other. What did they discover that turned them away from Jesus and to this other man? Maybe it's because they desired an insurrectionist the whole time and they expected Jesus to fit that role. But Jesus proved himself to be what they didn't expect. And if, uh, if I knew anything about sports, I might make a kind of a sports analogy. Uh, like maybe you're a diehard fan of one sports team and, um, after your team plays against another team, Suddenly, you're a diehard fan of that rival team. Uh, but what happened? What, what would happen during that game to cause you to switch allegiances like that? I would guess that the first team had lost, the team that you were originally a fan of, and that what you're actually a fan of isn't the team itself, but is just of winning. Uh, and I think we can agree that I know a lot about sports. And uh, today with Jesus, this happens often, all too often. Jesus has no shortage of fans. Um, even among those who do not follow him outside the church, there are plenty of Jesus admirers. People, people like Jesus. Um, and of course, inside the church, we ought to be his fans. But who among his followers ever admits, yeah, this part of Jesus you know, X, Y, or Z, is hard for me to accept, and I don't have a way to explain the discomfort away, but I trust him anyway, and I follow him. So in this sermon, I'm going to look at two ways that people accept Jesus on the basis of their own expectations, only to reject who he really is. And I'll draw the examples from uh, Luke chapters 19 through 23. It's big. I'm not going to talk about it all, but... Um, and for each example, I'll try to connect how each, in each one, we are guilty of the same flimsy acceptance. And I want to emphasize with each point that when Jesus does something unexpected in our own lives, in our own time, we need to accept him for who he is and what he does, even if it upsets our expectations. And then after the first two points, I'll have a third that's a little different about uh, seeking Jesus to know him just in the first place. 
So my first point, I want to accept Jesus, expecting him to bring the kingdom quickly, and I'm in danger of rejecting him when the kingdom is delayed. Sorry that my points are so long. Uh, It's like a whole paragraph. So I put the phrase the kingdom in quotation marks because uh, my point really interprets the kingdom to be relief from pain uh, and control over a situation. Um, It might as easily read, I want to accept Jesus, expecting him to bring relief quickly. And I'm in danger of rejecting him when relief is delayed. This point derives from the parable that Jesus teaches immediately before his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. I won't read the whole thing, but it's in Luke chapter 19, uh, so you can look into it yourself. Uh, Jesus is going through Jericho, which is about eight hours away from Jerusalem by foot. And there in Jericho, Jesus meets a man named Zacchaeus, wee little man. Uh, He explains to the people that this day, today, salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. Perhaps for the crowd, the word today rings in their ears. Today, salvation has come. Deliverance now. Um, While they were still listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. If I read the rest of the parable, you'd hear about the ten minas and the order to kill, which are really potent images that draw our attention. And it would be easy to get distracted by the judgment of the king that he makes upon his return. Um, And the judgment is an important part of the parable, don't get me wrong. Uh, But what happens at the return of the king is not the point of the parable, as Jesus tells it. The reason Jesus tells the parable is actually recorded for us. It says that Jesus told the parable because the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once or immediately. And again, I'm focusing on the relief and control that the kingdom would bring to the people. Um, I want to sit in that expectation for a moment. It's a very relatable thing to believe that some good thing from God is right around the corner. It's relatable and even good to hope and hope strongly that God will bring the kingdom to our lives and end our pain. Sometimes the pain of life is only bearable to us because we hope that God will fix it soon. There are, I mean, after all, there are plenty of pains that we willingly enter into uh, knowing that they're going to be brief. But when the pain persists and becomes a day of pain or a week of pain or a year or a decade, our hope for relief becomes strained, desperate. The hope that carried us through the pain is struggling and it it feels overworked. Then there it is. 
a sign that God is at work. Perhaps our pain will finally come to an end. So, so I don't know why, but for some reason it reminds me of uh, the TV show Lost, uh, where in the show there's a mysterious button that they have to push every 108 minutes. Um, and somehow that prevents world destruction. I don't know. You have to watch the show. Uh, typically, the button presser is utterly alone. He carries the burden alone. And it uh, might be easy for him for the first few days to uh, press the button every 108 minutes. But as time goes on, the person responsible to press the button becomes stretched. He can never get a night's sleep uninterrupted. He can never travel outside of a 50-minute radius. Excuse me. He never has anyone to vent his frustrations to because he's alone. Um, he never has anyone to connect with. But then, a plane crashes on the island. Uh, and the button presser guy thinks, maybe somebody else can take my place. Uh, maybe I can finally be free. Maybe I can have relief. I've pressed this button for so long. Anyway, this is a bad analogy to what the Jewish people uh, were feeling under Rome's op oppression. They were God's chosen people to bless the whole world. I guess that was their button. I don't know. Uh, the responsibility to be God's blessing rested with them. Um, and they had books and books of essentially empty promises. The world didn't seem very blessed. Everyone around them was a conqueror. But after cycles of brutal, dominating rulers, the empty promises in those books were looking like they were about to fill up. A man who said he would make the blind see and the lame walk did those things. And he said he'd make the prisoner free. Free us from our captors. Take away the pain. Reign as a new ruler. They hear him say, Today salvation has come to this man. Perhaps tomorrow he will bring salvation to us all. After all, he's not very far from Jerusalem. So back to Jesus telling the parable. Jesus does not rebuke those who thirst for deliverance. It's not wrong to hope. He doesn't tell them to stop hoping. By telling this parable, he tells them that salvation that they were looking for is just not around the corner. It won't come immediately. The man of noble birth will go away to a far away place to be appointed king and then return. So at this time chart, uh, Jesus tells them that the king will be a little slower than they expect. Uh, he tells them, basically, your pain will not come to an end today or tomorrow. You will still need your hope to, to carry you through. And it just so happens that the example I picked is not between the entry and the uh, crucifixion, but I could have just as easily picked the teaching in Luke 21, uh, where Jesus says that the temple and Jerusalem itself will be uh, overtaken and destroyed before the coming of the kingdom. Um, they won't just have to wait, they'll have to suffer in the downtime. And for some of them, this is too much to bear. They expected 
relief. They depended on quick relief. For them, Jesus is too slow. Barabbas, the insurrectionist, he represents quick relief. Um, Just like the crowd, when we demand quick relief, we deny Christ. So which will it be? There are so many ways that Jesus tells us the same potentially upsetting news. And I bet you can think of a way that Jesus has already been telling you in your own life um, that you won't get relief as soon as you'd like. And it's easy to ignore Jesus and uh, reach for relief anyway. You know, get it, get it sooner on our own terms. If Jesus calls us into long suffering, though, will we fit ourselves into his mold and leave the bits of us that don't fit behind? If you try to fit Jesus into your mold, you won't get the full Jesus. To my second point, I want to accept Jesus because I expect that he will allow me to fight and I'm in danger of rejecting him because he demands self-rejection. Sorry again for the paragraph-long points. For this point, I'll focus on Peter. Peter is one of the 12 disciples, 12 apostles, and he's among the crowd of disciples uh, at the triumphant entry, just like everybody else. Um, And just like everybody else, he's not present at the crucifixion. Uh, So the same question is begged. What changed for Peter? Was he expecting Jesus, excuse me, what was he expecting Jesus to do in Jerusalem? How did he go from one extreme to the other? So we look at uh, Luke 22, uh, some of the scenes that Peter has in that chapter just before the crucifixion in Luke 23. Um, well, it's clear that at the Last Supper, after years of following Jesus, Peter is still just interested in power. All the disciples are arguing at the table about who's the greatest. Satan is in the process of sifting his disciples. Jesus' disciples, I mean. Jesus tells Peter that he prayed for Peter. And Peter declares that he is ready to follow Jesus to prison and to death. What does Peter Peter have in mind when he asks that question? Or sorry, when he makes that statement, that he's um, willing to follow Jesus to prison and to death. I have a hard time believing that Peter means that he will willingly enter into prison or willingly enter into death. What I think Peter means is, I will fight for you. Uh, even against great resistance, even if it means prison or death. I won't stop fighting. It's probably similar to uh, Gimli saying, you have my axe. Uh, Gimli isn't trying to loan Frodo his axe. He's offering to fight for him. And I've sometimes read this as Peter making a, uh, a nice claim to stick with Jesus um, and to be his friend but that maybe he later chickens out uh, out of his commitment because he's afraid to get caught. 
But now I think that Peter would have done exactly what he said he would do if it were in the context of a brawl. Uh, But a brawl is not what Peter gets. Later in the garden, Jesus willingly gives himself up to the authorities. Peter draws his sword and strikes. He's ready to go to prison and fight to the death. He's ready for the honorable death of a warrior. But Jesus takes the pathetic death of compliance, non-resistance. On top of that, Jesus forbids Peter from taking any action. No more of this, Jesus says as he heals the wound that Peter's sword inflicted. If he were disarmed by his enemy, I'm sure Peter would have just used his hands. But Peter was disarmed by his master. Thus, the wind is taken from Peter's sails. His fast-beating heart pumps adrenaline but has no release. His master is being taken away, and he can't do anything about it. His plan fell through. So along with everybody else, Jesus leaves Jesus. Or sorry, Peter leaves Jesus. Jesus forbids us, you and me, from defending ourselves. Across the Gospels, he says, Do not resist an evil person. Make up your mind beforehand not to worry how you will defend yourself. And if you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if if you let your life go, then you will save it. His words are not limited to physical self-defense. If you're a member of this church, there is little to gain, little, not nothing, little to gain from asking questions like, what does God want me to do if a bad guy is holding my family hostage and I somehow have a gun? There is much to gain from asking questions like, what does God want me to do if a fellow sinner insults me, embarrasses me, or distrusts me? The answer from Jesus is, do not defend yourself. For whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. It goes against every fiber in our sinful nature to go unarmed. Just this last Thursday, I was in a conversation where I had felt like like an uncontrollable hunger for self-defense. Oh, I forgot to do the slide, but whatever. Uh, Felt like an uncontrollable hunger for self-defense. A friend of mine had exposed my sin. I had wanted to do something that I thought would be fun, uh, and I didn't think about how it would put others down and dishonor them. And my friend told me that my fun would not be honoring to others. Uh, And when she said that, I felt my my chest tighten. Uh, my instinct for self-defense took over. Um, and I tried to make an excuse for myself. I, I tried to find a way to have my fun, uh, or at least reason why it would be okay. Hey, you know, this isn't dishonoring. And I knew I was wrong, but maybe I could get through the conversation without saying the dreaded words, I was wrong. Um, in fact, my self-defense won out that day, and it took me till. Yesterday, as I was writing this, to text her and say, hey, thank you for saying that. I was wrong. Um, 
Anyway, Jesus was asking me during the conversation, though, to be humbled. And I, I chose self-defense instead. And just like Peter, when we defend ourselves, we deny Christ. So which will it be? If Christ calls us to put down our sword of self-defense, will we fit ourselves into his mold and leave the bits of us that don't fit behind? If you try to fit Jesus into your mold, the Jesus you get is not Jesus at all. Um, so it brings me to my third point, and that is, I'm not interested, I'm not even interested in discovering more of Jesus' character. Or rather, I am in danger of being not interested in discovering more of Jesus' character. My, phone, my final point does not draw from a particular story uh, from Jesus' time in and around Jerusalem. The point is simply what I think God might uh, have for some of the people in this room. I think that many people are stuck here at the, at the left side, at the accepted Jesus part, and uh, the question marks in the middle are Jesus revealing more of himself, and we're stuck before that. We don't want to uh, get into those question marks. Um, we don't really know much about Jesus, but we like him well enough to accept him, to come to church, to occasionally do some spiritual discipline and call it a day. But discovering more of Jesus maybe scares you uh, or just sounds plain hard. If I learn more of Jesus, what if he asks me to change? What happens if I don't want to change? I like who I am right now. Will I reject him? Will he reject me? I'll be honest, I really like who I am right now to the point where I find it hard sometimes to ask God, what do you want, Lord? Like, honestly, what do you want? And who are you, and how can I look more like you? It terrifies me that God might ask me to leave some part of myself behind so I can fit into his mold. If you like the, uh, the way that you are right now, you also might be stuck here too on this left-hand side. And if following Jesus has been pretty comfortable for you lately, then maybe you're also stuck at this left-hand side. And don't make Scripture into an idol, but uh, if you haven't been in Scripture trying to uh, learn about Jesus' character, maybe you're also stuck on this left-hand side. Um, and for you, I don't have like a straightforward answer, but I do have a prayer. It's selected verses from Psalm 27. It's a prayer that... Uh, that desperately wants to know more of God and that asks God and, and trusts that God will be accepting um, after he you know, reveals himself. Anyway, so I'll pray. Um, yeah, that, that prayer from Psalm 27 uh, to conclude us. And then I think Adriana will lead us in community sharing. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your ways, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Amen.